Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, never thought that'd be a controversial statement. Boys and girls, unwanted pets and relatives, greetings and hello. It is I, your favorite obscure social studies teacher, whose love for liberty and open-mindedness would easily brand me a right-wing extremist, Mr. Palumbo. And this is the Professor Liberty Podcast. Thanks for tuning in, folks. I always appreciate it. You know, uh, I got a banger of a show for you guys today. As the kids would say, it's fire. It's something that's been in the hopper for a while. It's been in the crevasses of my mind, lurking around within my lesson plans. And just under my lecture notes, something that has been incubating just long enough for me to now put it out there in the universe, and I'm really excited about it. Before we get into that, though, I'd like to give you the email to the show. The email is ProfessorLiberty1776 at gmail.com. That's ProfessorLiberty1776 at gmail.com. Also, don't forget to check out the website, ProfessorLiberty.com. You can send me your questions, observations, indications, predictions, analyzations. That's not a word. Whatever you want, send them to ProfessorLiberty1776 at gmail.com. You can also hit me up on Facebook Messenger, which is something that is something you guys like to do on a regular basis. All right, so today's show is called The Citizen and the War Machine, and we're going to discuss the American war machine. In other words, how the United States mobilizes and conducts war and how it did so in the past, most especially during thing, times like World War One, World War II, Vietnam. Now, there are many places we can take this, but I want to discuss today specifically is how the United States mobilized for war in the past compared to how it conducts warfare today. Related to this, I want to also talk about the American public in general. What is their role? How are they involved in wartime uh, matters, in war fighting? How were they involved in previous eras versus how are they involved now? You see, at one point in American history, war fighting was a national affair. Everyone had skin in the game, so to speak. Today, however, around 1% of the American population engages in warfare, while the other 99 do nothing. And I literally mean nothing. Their lives aren't affected one bit, and like human nature, if their lives aren't affected by it, they could care less about it. When we're not impacted by something, when we're not, uh, when our lives aren't uh, changed or influenced or, uh, you know, if, if it's not shaken or stirred or what am I trying to say? If, if our lives, if our daily lives aren't hampered in some way, then we don't pay attention to it. This is obviously dangerous because the government, if it's not checked by a vigilant citizenry, it's going to be prone to more corruption and abuse. All right, so let's set the table here first, like we always try to do. And let's kind of set the foundation. Throughout most of American history, war fighting was very similar to other countries in the 18th and 19th century, or at least countries that weren't empires. 
Namely, it was a national affair, like I said earlier. When war broke out, funds were raised, men were trained, and the rest of the society did their part, whether it be work in the factories, volunteer as nurses, rationing goods, and so on. Standing armies, which is another way to say permanent professional armies, were not a normal state in America in previous centuries. In fact, in America specifically, standing armies were seen as a threat to a free state. The United States maintained a professional officer corps, and they had some enlisted men, but these forces were small. When conflict arose, the nation would increase their armed forces via a conscription or draft, and we'll talk a little bit about that later. And when war was over, the military forces would fall back to peacetime levels. Why did the United States have a history of maintaining a small military? Well, like I said, standing armies were seen with suspicion. And it was seen with suspicion for a couple of reasons, so let's talk about that. First off, we have to remember that the early history of this nation, we were colonies. We were colonies of a world empire, Great Britain. And as such, we were treated like colonies. Most empires maintain heavily military presence in their colonies to protect them, but to also keep them in line. A military was used as a de facto police force, and in some other countries around the world, this is still the case. Standing armies were seen as tools or arms of the tyrant, used to do his bidding and to crack some skulls, if you will, if anyone got out of line. This is one of, this, one of these uh, tensions you can see in the Boston Massacre, where these troops, these British troops, were harassed by colonists, and someone got shot, and there was a riot, and then there was a trial. The underpinning of that story is this suspicion and this mistrust and this hatred of standing armies. There's another philosophical reason, however, as well. You see, republics, which the United States is, it's a republic, it's not a democracy. In republics, they're supposed to be free states of the people, by the people, and for the people, as President Lincoln would argue. Well, standing armies have never been seen as a characteristic of a republic. Large professional armies are more in line with empires, as I just mentioned. The ancient Republic of Rome, for example, waged war just like we did before World War I. War came, citizens were conscripted, they swore allegiance to the Republic, not to an emperor or a general, and once war was over, they went back to their farms. Coincidentally, this is why when you join the military, you never swear an oath to the president, but to the Constitution. So because the founders of this nation and the framers of the Constitution, many of whom belong to both groups, experienced firsthand the tyrannical effects of a standing army, and because they sought to establish a free republic, not a tyrannical empire, they tried to ensure that a standing army would never happen in America in the future. They did this by including the Second and Third Amendments to the Constitution. So let's talk about that. The second, obviously most people know about, the Second Amendment is the right for individuals, no, not just simply militias, nice tri-statists, but individuals to bear arms for self-defense. 
be it from your neighbor or your government. I've made this point several times in class and in other places. The left likes to try to split hairs and say that the Second Amendment is just for state militias. Well, let's take this to its conclusion. Who are the state militias made up of? Who makes up the state militias? People, individuals. So, yes, the Second Amendment is a right for the individual to bear arms and defend himself. This is why tyrannical governments, this is why authoritarians always seek to disarm the population. The Third Amendment, which some have nicknamed the Runt Piglet of the Bill of Rights. (laughs) I kind of like that. And it's called the Runt Piglet because it's never directly been cited or used by the Supreme Court when interpreting law. However, the Third Amendment has helped bring this aura or this uh, theme or this scarlet letter throughout the Bill of Rights of this right to privacy. The Third Amendment to the Constitution forbids governments from quartering their soldiers in private homes. Now, you see, this, this, this seems very weird. Like, why, you know, we, today, we don't have any idea what this is. And this is probably why the Third Amendment has never been used. But you see, during the French-Indian War, and even during peacetime, the Great Britain, Britain needed to house the thousands of soldiers on American soil. So they had an idea. They said, hey, we'll let the colonials house the troops. And you not only had to house them, but you had to feed them, wash their clothes. Can you imagine that? Just imagine being forced by the government to house and care for a random stranger and at your expense. So like I said, early America maintained a tradition very similar to that of the ancient Roman Republic. In this system, citizens fought for the Republic. And once the war was over, those citizens returned to their farms, their communities. And we maintain this tradition, more or less, up until September 1945, which is pretty impressive, I guess. Well, what happened in September 1945? Well, the Japanese uh, surrendered and World War II officially came to an end. But after this, the United States did not thin out their military. I mean, they did a little bit, but not to pre-World War II levels. And we'll talk a little bit about this when we get to President Eisenhower. Due to things like the Cold War, the United States war machine could never completely turn off again with threats in Korea the Cuban Missile Crisis, Vietnam, the spread of communism, the American military establishment changed from what we just shared to what we have now, which is obviously something of a more permanent military presence, not only in our country, but around the world. So losing this tradition of no permanent military would be bad enough. But with the Cold War and especially Vietnam, the country also loses something else. And I think this is just as important, and that is the loss of a civilian army. Now, I know what you're going to say. Uh, Mr. Palumbo, we have a fully volunteer force of, you know, um, citizens. I understand what you're saying. Obviously, our military is made up of citizens. But as I mentioned earlier, it's a very small percentage. Only about 1% of our citizens have served in the military. And to say they bear the brunt of the fighting 
is an understatement. During the height of Afghanistan and Iraq, many military personnel, especially if you were in the Army or the Marines, served multiple tours in both theaters. You can watch the movie American Sniper uh, that kind of shares this, right? Multiple tours. You would come home for six months, then you'd go to Afghanistan for six months. Then you'd come home for six months, then you'd go to Iraq for six months. Now compare that with a tour in Vietnam, which required a one-time one-year commitment. So while other 20-year-olds are partying and sleeping through their college classes, other 20-year-olds in this country are serving multiple tours in combat. While most people are going to Walmart for Black Friday stampedes for that TV, other families are barely getting by because as single parents, they're they're being single parents basically because their spouse is overseas. My point is this. Yes, our armed forces come from the citizen volunteers, but it's such a small group of people, it allows the vast majority of Americans to live their lives without any sacrifice whatsoever. This brings us to the topic of conscription. Conscription is just compelled or forced enlistment, so think of the draft. And the United States has had several drafts in its history. Now, the topic of the draft hits me square in the crossroads between my libertarian and my conservative sensibilities. And I want to talk about that for a sec. The libertarian in me sees the draft as illegal and against the principles of liberty. No one should be forced to fight a war they disagree with. But my conservative side thinks if a country is going to engage in war then it's the people's bound patriotic duty to participate. You see, the draft, like most things, has pros and cons. The pros of a draft is your nation gets a near unlimited supply of troops and all the citizens participate in the nation's endeavors. Another pro is that the draft forces people to pay attention to what their government is doing. Think about all the great protest songs that came out of the 60s and 70s because people were well aware of what their country was doing because they might find their behind over there. The cons of the draft are, as I already said, it's against the principles of liberty and a free society. If you claim to live in a free country, then you should be able to choose whether or not to serve in the nation's military. Also, a draft in some ways decreases your force's effectiveness. How so? Well, if you have a third or a half of the people in your army that don't want to be there, they're probably not going to fight as well as those who have volunteered. And this is kind of what happened in Vietnam. As the war dragged on in Vietnam and the U.S. officials blundered and bombed, literally, their way through it, the American public, as well as those serving in the Army and in the other branches, disagreed with the mission, or the morale started to go down. Some didn't even understand the mission. My point is, people are forced to pay attention because they have skin in the game. The Pentagon's blunders affected them personally. This being the case... Their morale and their fighting spirit took a major hit, but there was constant questions about what are we doing over here? Compare that to today, where we've spent 20 years in Afghanistan, where people have been born, raised, now are grown adults, 
They couldn't find Afghanistan on a map. They have no clue why the United States was over there. There's some mention of terrorism, which never seems to threaten them at all. The only terrorism they experience is the increased police surveillance state and maybe a molestation or two at the airport by the TSA. Young people still have their Xboxes, their Nike shoes, and their Netflix, and they are as happy as they can be. Another way citizens participated in the war effort was through things like rationing and buying war bonds. So let's talk about those two things for a minute. Rationing is just as it sounds. It's when government requires citizens not to consume everything they want. For example, citizens can only have so much coffee a week or buy so much butter or so much cloth for making dresses or curtains or whatever, right? People were also encouraged to recycle rubber and tin and donate things like cooking grease for making bombs. And this wasn't even 100 years ago, guys, but doesn't this sound odd to our consumer-centric live-my-life culture that we have today? In our day and age, we have been asked to sacrifice nothing. No time, no resources, no pleasure at all. But why were citizens required to ration? Well, it helped with the war effort. This was before the United States just borrowed and printed money into oblivion. Budgets were fixed. There's There's a odd idea. And also, currency was fixed. We still had the gold standard. We didn't completely go off the gold standard until Richard Nixon, you know, that evil Republican who, if we're honest, should be in the Progressive Party Hall of Fame. Again, why am I bringing this up? Well, the whole society was required and encouraged to give something towards the war campaign. And when society is engaged in personal sacrifice, be it a draft or rationing, they're going to pay attention to what their government is doing. There's nothing more scary There's nothing more dangerous than a government who gets to do whatever it wants. Unchecked power. There were also things like war bonds. A war bond is literally an investment in the war. A citizen could buy a war bond, say for like 25 bucks. And in a set number of years, the government would pay them back with interest, often doubling it to say 50 bucks. According to Investopia.com, the U.S. government raised $180 billion in war bonds to fight World War II. Over 80 million Americans, average, blue-collar, everyday Americans, bought a war bond. That's roughly 60% of the country's population in the mid-1940s. So think about that. Compare that to today, where 1% or 2%, or I'll even give you 3%, of the nation's population is engaged in the war activities compared to 1945 where over 60% of the nation bought a war bond. Now, as we've already talked about, most of the reason why the, the Great War machine didn't stop is because of the Cold War after World War II. The Cold War was the economic and political ideological struggle between the capitalist West and the communist East, and it raged for the later half of the 20th century. This ideological battle didn't really allow for the United States to return to the isolationism of her past. In his farewell address, President Eisenhower wrestles with this very issue. Eisenhower writes, Our military organization today bears little relation to that known by any of my predecessors in peacetime, 
or indeed by the fighting men of World War II or Korea. Until the latest of our world conflicts, the United States had no armaments industry. American makers of plowshares could, with time, as required, make swords as well. But now we can no longer risk emergency improvisation of national defense. We have been compelled to create a permanent armaments industry of vast proportions. Added to this, three and a half million men and women are directly engaged in the defense establishment. We annually spend on military security more than the net income of all United States corporations. And this is 1959-1960, folks. He goes on to say, We must never let this weight of this combination endanger our liberties and democratic process. We should take nothing for granted. Only an alert and acknowledged citizenry can compel the proper meshings of a huge industrial and military machinery of defense with our peaceful methods and goals so that security and liberty may prosper together. For the sake of time, I can't read all of it, but Eisenhower's farewell speech, in my opinion, should be required reading in any American history class. I believe it goes right up there with Washington's farewell speech when he warned of the dangers of entangled alliances. What President Eisenhower was trying to say is that even though defense is important, Defense of the country is important. What's also important is defense of personal liberty. You can Google right now something like Pentagon misplaced billions, and there's at least three or four articles, each about two or three years apart, that will say the Pentagon admits to misplacing $16 billion here, $22 billion there. I believe Eisenhower is even quoted as saying, for every gun that is made or rocket that is fired, Someone goes hungry or naked or sleeps in the cold. In economics, we call this the bread or bullets dichotomy. When you teach this in class, what you're talking about is countries have to decide whether to allocate their resources for every rocket made. Something else domestic is ignored. Ergo, butter. Bullets for butter. So there you have it, folks. Let's take a real quick glance, a review of what we've talked about. The United States has a permanent standing army. Check. The United States does not seek or ask its citizens, broadly speaking, to invest in wars or sacrifice for wars or to serve in wars. Check. The United States spent approximately $3 trillion in Iraq and Afghanistan, respectfully, and now is giving Ukraine $40 billion so far. Check. And if anybody asks where this money is going... And why they're spending this money overseas. You're branded unpatriotic. You're branded as someone who loves tyranny. You're branded someone who loves Russia or loves Putin. And the war machine goes round and round and round. And it doesn't matter who's president. The defense budget under George W. Bush in 2001, $331 billion. The defense budget when Barack Obama became president in 2009, $705 billion. The defense budget when Donald Trump became president, $646 billion. The defense budget when Joe Biden became president, $700 billion. It doesn't matter, folks. It doesn't matter if you vote Republican. It doesn't matter if you vote Democrat. It doesn't matter if you don't vote. It doesn't matter if you do vote. The military-industrial complex runs the country. Presidents have no control. Congress has no control because the special interests and the arms dealers and the merchants of death 
have our politicians in their pocket. Here at Professor Liberty, we seek to educate, inspire, and restore. If you like this podcast, please go to Apple Podcasts and give me a five-star rating. Check out ProfessorLiberty.com. Hit me up on Facebook. Hit me up on Twitter. Go to TeachersPayTeachers.com for special assignments, worksheets, and activities designed by me. Until next time, go throughout the land and proclaim liberty.